This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall. And tonight, my dear colleagues and co-hosts, Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem are off. So I'm flying solo. And our guest in the second hour of the show is Drew Dudley. And Drew has just released a new book, and his book is called This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. So, Drew, welcome to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, Drew, it's really a pleasure to have you. Let me say just a word or two about you, and then we will talk about your about your book. So, Drew, you're the founder and CEO of Day One Leadership, and you have clients from some of the world's most dynamic companies and organizations, including McDonald's, Kohl's, Hyatt Hotels, Procter & Gamble, J.P. Morgan Chase, and over 75 colleges and universities. You've spoken to over 250,000 people on five continents. You've been featured on the Huffington Post, Radio America, Forbes.com, and TED.com, where your TED Talk was voted one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all times. So, Drew, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Very good. Well, now, I've read your book, and but I actually I want to start with the inscription because I thought it was really lovely. For Anastasia, you made me want to build a better life for myself and a better self for my life. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful. Yes, it, it was actually one of the uh, last things that she wrote. Her little, her twin sister found it in her phone oh. uh, afterwards, and uh, that actually is my first tattoo. It's actually tattooed on the inside right of my forearm, so I can look at it and remind myself. Because strangely enough, the perfect encapsulation of what I try to teach didn't come from me, <laughs> and I've always found that really interesting. That I would have spent an entire life trying to boil it down to something that perfect. Yes, and now I know from uh, reading your book that some of your uh, wisdom has come from uh, battles that you yourself have fought and, fought and some personal tragedy. So, you know, I don't like to start on too dark a note, but maybe would you start there? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess I should fill in the story of uh, what I just to what I just alluded. Yes. Uh, the book is dedicated to uh, to my uh, ex girlfriend who unfortunately passed away just a couple of weeks after making me promise to finish the book. I like a lot of people out there. You can go around and have people tell you they like your ideas, but when it comes down to sitting and writing a book, mm-hmm. it can be a little bit intimidating. And so I, I wrote it or a lot of it, the first draft, and I stuck it in a drawer. And I came home one day, and uh, she was sitting on the couch reading this folder because she'd gone looking for something in a desk. And I came in and just got this glare over top of the folder (laughs) as I walked in. And she said, why is this in a drawer? And sure enough, uh, she started sort of hounding me to get it published. And uh, she made me promise to do it on the 1st of January last year. And and unfortunately, she passed away suddenly uh, only a couple of weeks later. And so that has been sort of the world in which we've been working to get the book published, because not only is it mm-hmm. sort of a distillation of what I've been working on for 
gosh, I guess the last 10 years, but it, it really is a personal promise that I wanted to keep. And I think it's also a real focus on what the book is about, which is the immense power that any individual mm-hmm. can have in the life of another, because it's quite possible that book isn't written if somebody doesn't say to someone that they care about, I believe in you, mm-hmm. and I think these ideas are good. And, and that's really sort of the, the big piece of that dedication. And, and of course, the book also talks about uh, my personal, uh, some of the personal things that I've, I've struggled with over the last mm-hmm. decade and learned mm-hmm. a lot from, which includes uh, dealing with uh, recovering from alcohol addiction, uh, mm-hmm. being bipolar in a world where mm-hmm. I think that intellectual, uh, it, mental illness is still equated with mental weakness. And, and of course, I, I dropped 100 pounds uh, over the course <laughs> of, of this process as well. So a lot of what informs the book mm-hmm. it comes from that. At the same time, a lot of why I believe in the book emerges from all of that, because I've used the process in it to stay the man I want to be through all of that. Uh, at the same time, some of the things that are in the book came as a result of the successes and failures of dealing with all of those things. Mm. Well, Drew, well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm I'm sorry about your loss, uh, but very, very pleased at the same time to have this opportunity to, to speak with you and to uh, share some of the learnings from your experiences. Your Your opening chapter is called This is Day One. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by day one? Sure. The idea of the day one process or the day one mindset is it's trying to give everybody a way to plan, execute, and then evaluate their personal leadership on a daily basis. And I think we've been taught to evaluate it over blocks of time by how much money we make or what our titles are. And the idea of this is day one focuses more on what I think is a real truth that we've lost a little bit. The primary determinant of what other people think of us and what we think about ourselves is really how we behave on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest impact. And so that's where our focus on establishing what leadership is That's where it has to come from. And so the day one idea is if you could go back to your first day, to day one, knowing what you know now, and you could build yourself into the leader and the person that you want to be, starting there with all your current knowledge, what behaviors would you make non-negotiable every day? What would you say, this is how I'm going to behave every single day? And that did emerge from that experience in uh, recovery, because what you learn in recovery is that if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you have to choose not to have a drink today, Mm -hmm. and then you have to treat every day of the rest of your life as if it's your first day, as if it's day one of your Mm -hmm. recovery, Mm -hmm. where that non-negotiable behavior has to be prioritized. It's not something, not having a drink isn't something I can do if I've got time in between meetings. It has to be a fundamental part of my identity. And the idea of day one is there's an inherent commitment, humility, and forgiveness that comes on day one. And so let's treat leadership as if every day is day one, Because what it means is that these certain non-negotiable leadership behaviors that define who we are and how we want to impact other people and organizations, they become non-negotiable. And the book is about how to figure out what those behaviors are for you Mm -hmm. and then how to actually embed them in a strategic way into your life. And that's really what day one is all about. It's not saying you restart every day. It's saying you recommit. It is Mm -hmm. not saying every day is the same day. 
but it is saying there are certain behaviors that have to be the same every day. Mm. Well, I'm sorry my co-host Jeff Klein isn't here because he is uh, well known for, for giving this opening talk to students, which he does much better than I. But he begins by saying that leadership is not a salary. It's not a corner office. It's not a position. It's an act. <laughs> and what I'm hearing in your words is that it's an act of commitment each day. <laughs> yeah, it's a series of acts, really. And, and I think that's the key. The idea is that um, if you can't specifically point to instances where you lived up to the person you wanted to be many times, like if you you only do it two or three times a week, then leadership isn't a practice, it's a hobby. And really what I try to get people Mm -hmm. thinking about is how do we make it a practice, something that's non-negotiable every day, not just the stuff that we do when we got time. Very good. And now I also like your point, and I think I'm hearing in this, uh, that leadership maybe, is this right, less about how we see ourselves and how others see us? I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I think that if we see ourselves as leaders, we are far more likely to act in a way that lead to other people seeing us as leaders, which isn't to say that we have to act in a way that's cocky, but I do think we have to act in a way that's true to ourselves. And I think leadership, and I dive into this a lot in the book, leadership is being able to use a consistent set of values to make all of your decisions. And a big part of leadership is this idea of value-based decision-making. Right. That if you identify your core leadership values, every time you have to make a choice, you've got the criteria set up right there. Which one of these choices best reflects these values? Mm -hmm. And what happens then is not only do you feel as if you're living up to the person that you want to be on a daily basis, but because your decision-making is consistent and because your decision-making reflects real core values – it impacts how other people view you. They may mm-hmm. not always agree with the decisions you make, right. but if you're consistent in how you make them, they're going to respect you. And so leadership isn't just how you view yourself. It isn't just how others view you. It really is a reflection. There's a sort of circular relationship there. If you believe that you are the person that you want to be, if you're acting in a way that's consistent and someone that makes you proud, that's going to impact how people view you they're going to see you as someone who's worth following, in which case that reinforces that what you're doing is the right way to go, and around in circles we go. Yeah, very good. So let's talk a little bit about the word leader and leadership for a moment. And uh, I'll just say that in my experience working with uh, undergrads, MBAs, executive MBAs, executives too, but primarily undergrads, I find if I use the word leadership, they're more able to act in leader-like ways because, and you touch on this in your book, because they may or may not see themselves as leaders. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I'll start by saying most don't. Mm-hmm. I, I've, you know, I've spoken to over a thousand audiences around the world, and every single time I ask, how many of you in this room are completely comfortable calling yourself a leader? And it's less than 1% of the time where you get half the people in the room raising their hands. Mm -hmm. And that's not just students. It started with students. And so I thought, oh, once I start getting up to conferences with CEOs, well, then we're going to see a lot more hands go up. It didn't happen. So there's this discomfort. And I think you hit it on the head. It's the term leader. People think that it calls for a level of cockiness and arrogance to claim it for yourself. And so it's leadership we feel a little more comfortable with, because leadership is a process, and leader is a title. 
And you know what's interesting? I just discovered this not too long ago. Do you know, I think the term, I have a friend of mine who's really into where words came from, and I'm not going to lie here live on the radio, I don't remember the word that he used to describe the origin of words, but he said, okay, do you realize that the term leader, I think the first time that it can get traced back into use is about the 12th century, and it was 500 years later before you can find the first instance of the word leadership. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting, is that this idea of a person, all right, mm-hmm. leader and, and being in charge embodied in a person existed for a lot longer than this idea that I think has emerged much more recently that leadership mm-hmm. exists. And so there is a difference between the two. And I'd like to see us sort of reframe how we see leader, mm-hmm. because right now, just as a thought right. experiment, yeah. we treat the term leader like it's a military rank. So once you achieve it, once you accumulate enough and it is bestowed upon you for whatever reason, you keep it for life. Like unless you really screw it up, you never get it taken away, Mm -hmm. even if you stop doing the things that earned you the title in the first place. And what I've always tried to, to, especially when I worked with students, is, okay, why don't we look at it this way? A leader only exists when they are demonstrating leadership. And so you're not just a leader today because you woke up and for the last 10 years you've had this position or you accomplished this big thing five years ago, you have to reprove it every day. And so when you engage in the process of leadership, which means you're engaging in acts that expand the other people's capacity, expand their skills, expand their opportunities, expand their self-worth, when you do things that are doing that, you are a leader in those moments. And when you stop doing them, you're not a leader anymore. So the idea would is we stop holding the idea of leader up as something that you achieve and keep. Mm-hmm. Instead, the goal isn't to say, well, Anne is a leader. The goal right. is to say Anne is usually a leader or <laughs> Anne is often a leader. And what happens then is that instead of teaching our kids that they should chase this goal one day, and once they get it, good, you succeeded. Instead, every single day you have to recommit to earning it over and over again. And you do that through leadership. And I think that that's a different way of teaching it. So the mm-hmm. goal isn't the title. The goal is the behaviors every day that earn the title, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Let me just pause and remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall, and my guest tonight is Drew Dudley. And Drew is the author of a new book. This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. If you have a question for Drew, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Drew, I so appreciate uh, the way that you talk about the difference, the nuance between leader and leadership. And it's empowering because as Anyone in the organization, no matter how high up you are, or, you know, just metaphorically speaking, how low you are in that organization, you have the opportunity to enact behaviors that earn the title leader. (laughs) Is that a fair summary? I think so, yeah. And from a business leader perspective, and by that I mean positional leader, If you're someone who has the influence in an organization to create culture, which is really what I think high-level positional leaders need to realize, is that they are culture creators. I think it's wise to remember that in most organizations, 
the individuals who have the most contact with your customers, with people on the quote-unquote outside world, and therefore have the biggest impact on how people talk about your organization, how they feel about your organization, those individuals are usually paid the least. And I realized that just a couple of years ago when talking to a CEO, and they were talking about, you know, how much talent they have at the top level, but they weren't seeing good reviews, you know, out there Mm -hmm. in the the world of the Internet. And I kind of realized that's because the people who talk to the individuals who write reviews, who interact with your company, you don't pay them very much. It's the nature of the beast, right? It's a big Mm -hmm. pyramid, and those at the bottom make less. And if they feel disempowered, and if they don't recognize their ability to have a real impact on others and see themselves as people with the right to call themselves leaders, they're not going to act like it. And so that's why it's so important as positional leaders within an organization Mm -hmm. to put a lot of focus in letting people know there is a form of leadership to which everyone can and should aspire in an organization. doesn't mean everybody can be a CEO. doesn't mean everybody can be a manager. Mm -hmm. But there is a form of leadership that says, okay, here's how I'm going to behave today that Mm -hmm. has a positive impact. If you put that throughout your organization, you got to realize that the people who are front-facing, they need to feel as if they are empowered in that way, because that's ultimately who has the biggest impact on how the world views your organization. Right. So if managers in an organization or leaders uh, in an organization are creators of culture, we're really talking about how they enact the values of the organization. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a big part of what culture means is I think culture refers to the things you are driven to do unconsciously. Because cultural expectations really control behavior much more than rules and policies and procedures. Because rules and policies and procedures, if you think about it, they're easy to break because we all accept that there's going to be some breaking of rules. And as long as you don't violate past a certain level, you get forgiven for that. But if you violate a cultural expectation... The, sw- the pushback is swift and it's universal. And so you start to adapt how you behave once you learn cultural expectations. I guess the best way I always uh, say as an example between the two. Oh, good, good. <laughs> it, well, ultimately, look, uh, look at it this. If, if, I, if, I'm, if you're at a conference and I'm the speaker and I get up on stage and I say, I got a speeding ticket on the way here today, you don't think less of me as a human being, right? But... If I show up on stage without pants, which is, <laughs> which, which is, you know, the fact we're supposed to wear pants is an arbitrary rule that we made up, all right? Your opinion of me is much more significantly damaged than if I broke a law. And the thing is, speed limits exist because they save lives. Wearing pants, we made that up. So the difference in the two is really powerful. So about enacting values, it's not just enacting them. It is making it such a regular part of the behavior of an organization and the people within it that it becomes expected without people even thinking about it. That's when you created a culture, when the expectations drive people's behavior, because they know if they violate them, there's going to be pushback. And that's a lot more powerful than any set of policies or procedures. Mm, Very good. Now, I'm wondering if you can give us an example of, um, you know, a a positive workforce culture in which... um, you know, performance is is excelling because the culture is so positive, just from your experience. 
You want a specific example of a sure. company? Sure. And if you'd prefer not to name names, but just give the company, you know, in general, make it generic, that's okay. Sure. There is a big parking garage company. And I know that sounds, you never think that there's a big parking garage company. And I remember when I had the opportunity to work with them, I knew right away it was different. Because the invitation came through Twitter and it said, Drew, would you like to come and speak to the sexiest parking company in America? (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And I knew right away it was different. And when I arrived there, the senior executive of the organization had brought six individuals who were frontline staff. So these are individuals who manned uh, toll booths, who parked valet cars, and they brought the six of them up. And each one got over five minutes discussing not only who they were and how they added to the organization, but giving two or three specific examples. And these are the senior vice president, the CEO, the founder who are doing these, these pieces, and they're doing them without notes. And they're talking about what this person added to the organization. And what they then did is every single one of the senior management, it was about 225 people there from around the country, got up and they did what they called a hug train. And I know that some people are wincing when they hear this, but every single member of the senior leadership went along, lined up, and hugged each of these people like it was a wedding party. And I remember turning to the head of their, actually, I believe it was um, VP of Corporate Culture, and I said, this is amazing, but there's got to be a lot of people who just don't react well to this. And she said, we know. What we do is we allow people after six months to decide to leave, and we give them basically six-month severance if they do. Because what happens is individuals who really can't live in this culture, they leave. And there's no hard feelings. And the only people who are left are individuals who recognize how important this is at every level. And the energy and the passion, and they still call me every year at their conference, even though I'm not speaking there anymore. And that sort of approach, the idea that it was expected that not only does the management recognize people at all levels of the organization, but they say to, each, they say to the other managers, you're expected to do this as well. And you're not supposed to just give a handshake or a gift certificate. You were supposed to recognize emotionally that these individuals make this company stronger. And you don't think the pride that that individual goes back and they sit in the toll booth, and that's not an easy job on a 98-degree day in Chicago. No, right. <laughs> but, that, but that individual knows it. And guess what? The person they hire, then when that person's training them, they tell them that. And the other people, when they come back and they tell them, this is how I was treated by the senior executives, you think that somebody else who works with them isn't going to say, that could easily be me next year. I, I think that's a powerful thing that I watched. And it simply was embedded in the culture. And I think that not only – I think what was really big about it, and I think you think about this with your organization – If you're willing to let high performers go, as weird as that sounds, if they don't buy into the overall collective culture, Mm -hmm. what actually happens is, yeah, it's hard to lose a high performer, but what you do is you create a better collective. And that's what they did, and they made it so enticing for people to choose to leave if they didn't like it that they actually did. Because it's one thing to say go if you don't like it after probationary period, but if you're going to be unemployed, who does it? But if you say, hey, I got six months coverage, And that seems like it would cost a lot for an organization. But really, you think about how much money it probably saves them in the long run. Mm -hmm. Very good. And would you say, just to put your finger on it, that that hug train was symbolic of the importance of caring, caring for each other? 
I think so. Uh, caring, it was recognition. Mm-hmm. I, I really think it was the importance of connecting emotionally. And I know that business sometimes you don't see emotion as a big part of it. But if you look at some of that big leadership research that comes out of, and if anyone hasn't read it, The Leadership Challenge by uh, Kuzis and Posner mm-hmm. out of the University of Santa Clara, when they identified five of the practices that really set extraordinary leaders apart from others, the final one was they encourage the heart, which means they don't have to be touchy-feely necessarily, mm-hmm. but we do have to recognize that how people feel directly impacts how they behave. Yeah, very good. And I'll just say that Sagal Barsed, one of our wonderful faculty members here, talks about something she calls companionate love in the workplace and leading with the heart in, in addition to the head and uh, the impact that that can have on the organization. So I know in your book you highlight six values that you think are important. You call them six core values. Could we talk about them? Sure, of course. First off, I got to give uh, a shout out. Thank you very much for the Canadian uh, music as we come back from the break. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I like that. Eh? Oh, good. <laughs> I love. I really appreciate our pro- our producer and engineer who try to cue up music that's appropriate for the show. Absolutely love it. Yes, in the book, I talk a lot about the importance of values as criteria for decision making. And in many ways, the book is a how-to guide on how to figure out the values that drive you. And we can talk about that later if you'd like, Mm -hmm. because I've discovered most people don't know what theirs are. They think they might, but they haven't given it a lot of thought. And so I talk about the process to surface your values, Mm -hmm. how to go through a series of activities that allow you to, in some cases, discover what they are. And as part of the process, I wanted to give examples. So I used the ones that drive me on a daily basis, personally and professionally. Because the idea of day one is that you want to put the book down and immediately (laughs) put the process to work. And let's face it, there's some homework in it. So I did provide six values that you could start on day one while you figure out your own that are going to make your your life and your organization better. And they are impact Mm -hmm. and courage, growth, empowerment, class, and self-respect. And those, when I went through the activities that I lay out in the book, these were the ones that surfaced as really important to me. They were what I wanted to define me. And so they became what I used to put this process into action. That's great. And now, are they listed in the order of importance for you? You know what? No. Because what's interesting is, in many ways, I put the foundational one last, And that is Mm. self-respect okay. because that's the value upon which everything else is built. And I don't think there's anything in your life or career that can't, there's no hole in your life or career that can't be filled with self-respect. And so it's odd. They're not in any particular order, Mm -hmm. but I think that one's really essential. And if you're hiring for an organization, that's one that we overlook a lot when we're trying to assess candidates, whether or not this is somebody who has a great deal of self-respect because they make much better employees. Mm. Okay, so let's let's start with self-respect so that it is so important, because it is so important. Can you um, make that a little bit more tangible or concrete for us? Sure. The idea of self-respect is when you make decisions, you have to keep four things in mind. And one, you have as much right to happiness as anyone else on the planet. And I think keeping that in mind when you make decisions, often we will sacrifice our happiness in the name of the organization, in the name of something else, because we, we know every bad thing that we've ever done. 
right? So we always sort of think, "Ah, I deserve it a little bit less, or if I work a little hard now, I can get it later. The other piece that I think sometimes managers miss out on is this. You can't add value to anyone else's life, organizational or personal, if you don't add enough value to your own. And I think that often we confuse leadership with martyrdom. And when I talk about self-respect, it's honestly realizing that when you sacrifice sleep, when you sacrifice your family life, when you sacrifice relationships in the name of business goals, ultimately what you're doing is you're emptying yourself out of the resources, the energy, the intellect that is really what got you into that position in the first place. And I think it's really important that when you make decisions, you keep that in mind. Is this going to empty me to such a degree that I can't bring my absolute best to the organization? Mm -hmm. And I think what's also really important when you make decisions is that recognizing that happiness and leadership is not possible without forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And I know that talking about forgiveness when we're talking about business and leadership seems a little bit odd because I think that forgiveness and healing is equated with weakness and hurt Mm -hmm. the same way that leadership is equated with strength. Mm -hmm. Leaders are supposed to be strong, and and strong people don't get hurt. So why should we talk about forgiveness and healing? But what a reason I bring it up is that because failing to forgive and not putting enough conscious effort into healing makes every leader less effective. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, the greatest leaders I know are the ones who recognize that healing and forgiveness is a skill. And so if I want to talk about a practical way we can put this in in process right now, is if you're listening, I want you to think about somebody in your life or career that you wish was still a part, that you wish you could call, you wish you could text, you wish you could lean on or share ideas or support. And the only reason you can't is you have not said I'm sorry or you have not heard I'm sorry. Leaders do fix that. Because when you pull conflict and when you pull stress out of any organization, what you do is you make people less afraid that they're going to be attacked. Because when people are in conflict, it's not just the conflict that causes the problem. It's the lack of communication Mm -hmm. that emerges as a result of that conflict. People are not willing to openly communicate because what they feel is not that people are willing to listen. It's that they're waiting for an opportunity to attack. And only when a leader of an organization demonstrates a commitment to healing and forgiveness and openly mending those fences that you actually see that start to create as culture. And just on a very practical, personal leadership level, there's nothing that you could do if you're listening to this. The number one thing that would instantly make your life better, that you are completely in charge of, (laughs) is forgiveness. Personally, professionally, of another person, or of yourself. And every other thing you do as a leader when you're trying to improve the lives of other people needs to take second stage to improving your own life, not your finances, not your career, not your sort of prestige, but ultimately creating, respecting yourself, because when you respect yourself, you treat others like you respect them as well. And that's where it all has to start, because people know that if you don't respect yourself, not only do you not respect them, but even if you do, it doesn't mean as much, if that makes any sense. Mm. No, that's great. I really appreciate all that, you've, all that you've said. And I wonder, just from your experience working with um, uh, young people and professionals, if, the, if forgiving oneself is often more difficult than forgiving others. Uh, 100%. 
there's absolutely no doubt at all that that is the case. And I think part of forgiving oneself or the challenge behind it actually underlies the whole book is that the reason we don't do it is we don't think we deserve it. That idea that one of the things self-respect you have to remember is that your happiness is your responsibility. But the idea of this day one approach of identifying your values and then creating a process by which you give yourself evidence every day that you're living them, that changes the way you feel about yourself. We don't forgive ourselves because often we don't see ourselves as people of, as, of worth. And that's hard to admit. Mm-hmm. The idea of day one leadership is that at the end of every single day, your primary focus is to give yourself evidence that you are someone of worth. And it's not because of your money and it's not because of your title. It's because you can look at your behaviors that day and say, here is examples of me living up to the person I want to be. And when you feel like you are someone of worth, it's a lot easier to forgive and it's a lot easier to realize that sometimes you don't have to, not of yourself, because you made up the slight in that case. There's nothing to forgive. That's very good. Now, as you look uh, out uh, out and about in the world, do you see an illustration of uh, someone who really exemplifies this uh, notion of forgiveness and healing and building culture in that way? You know, what's interesting is I think we often, when we ask that question, you're talking about uh, someone famous. And I know, obviously, we're, we're trying to look for examples here uh, that everyone can relate to. But I will say this just as something to bear in mind of everyone listening. I think your biggest leadership heroes should be people that you know personally. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the reasons that we disconnect the idea of leadership from ourselves is because when we're taught about leadership, what we're talking about is giants, presidents, CEOs. The example I'd use that's famous that you just mentioned is the Dalai Lama, for instance. Mm -hmm. This constant pivot to the idea of compassion, both for other people and for yourself, I think it is key. But for what it's worth, because we use these giants as our examples to think of, what happens is we disconnect the idea of leadership from ourselves because we don't see ourselves in those giants. So one of the things I suggest is to, when you're thinking about what leaders to celebrate. Mm -hmm. Instead of looking for the big names out there, always recognize that probably your biggest leadership heroes should be the people that you know personally because you get to see how they make decisions every day. You get to see the rationale they make, you get to see the values they prioritize, and you get to see what results from them. Most of the time when we look at big individuals who get profiled in Forbes or who make it on the news, what we see is the outcome of their decisions, but we don't see the criteria they use to make them. We don't see whether they use their real values to choose how to behave every day. All we see is the outcome. When you actually are looking at people you know, you get to evaluate that. So instead of like picking a big name, I just challenge everybody listening to think of someone in their lives that do it, because that is, I think, a lot more practical in terms of making it personal to us and realizing that, hey, we could talk about the Dalai Lama, but he's halfway around the world. (laughs) But if you think about that one boss Mm -hmm. or that one member of your family or that one friend or even that one student Mm -hmm. who exemplifies it near you, it brings it closer to you. And I think it also makes you realize that you can do it too. Mm -hmm. It's not some famous person. It's that kid sitting in your third row. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. That's wonderful. Well, let me just recap. We were we were talking about self-respect 
And that is one of the six core values that you've identified as an example for uh, readers to follow. The others are impact, courage, growth, empowerment, and class. I'd like to work backwards and talk about class. (laughs) Well, you know what's interesting is that the values are lived in the day one process by translating them into questions. The idea that I discovered, there's a couple of of psychological effects that I put into work here. Uh, The Zygarnik effect is one. And the idea is that, believe it or not, that is a scientific term for the fact that things you haven't completed take up a bigger place in your consciousness than things that you have. Mm. In other words, stuff that you haven't done bugs you. And we all knew that. We just didn't (laughs) know there was a fancy word for it. (laughs) The other is the question behavior effect, which is this. If I ask you questions about a certain type of behavior in the morning, you're more likely to engage in those behaviors later in the day. And so what we did in order to what we call operationalize these values is we defined what they meant, and then we turned them into questions. And basically what we created is the leadership test, six questions tied to those six values, And the goal every day is to get three out of the six. What that does is it creates that evidence I was talking about Mm -hmm. that you have lived up to your values. So when it comes to class, what we did is first we defined it. It's a commitment to treating people and situations better than they deserve to be treated. That's what it meant. All right. You had to really specify what the behaviors consistent with it were. And the question that I try to ask every day is, when did I elevate instead of escalate today? Hmm. And if you want a practical day one takeaway, if you're listening, those three words can save careers. Elevate, don't escalate. Elevating a situation means you try to succeed. Mm-hmm. Escalating means you try to win. And the idea is that in success, nobody has to lose. But when somebody wins, somebody loses. People will collaborate in pursuit of success, but they will dig in and defend their position when it comes to winning. Mm-hmm. So when you're getting tweaked by someone, when you're getting trolled online or in person, those three words, elevate the situation, don't escalate. Elevate it, don't escalate. And I think it was uh, Stephen Covey who who Mm -hmm. sort of popularized the phrase, we're the only creatures on the planet with a gap between stimulus and response. (laughs) Our careers (laughs) and our relationships and our leadership is pretty much dependent on how you use the gift of that gap. So when you get that email, when somebody's up in your face, when you're being disrespected out in a restaurant or wherever it might be, three words, elevate, don't escalate. Elevate the situation, don't escalate it. And every time I get the opportunity to answer that question, I seize it, and I know that what I've just done is embodied a value I care about. And I'm not going to lie, usually I'm convinced I would have felt a lot better to actually escalate the situation. Mm -hmm, Right. But... In, in about 20 minutes, you're always glad that you were classy. Oh, so good. Well, now I'm now I'm wishing my, my running partners, Marcy and Mary Francis, were here because we have an expression on the run, and that is to try to be our best selves, even though the gap between the ideal and the reality is wide. <laughs> but it, but uh, it's our way of saying try to 
be classy, try to elevate rather than escalate. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm flying solo tonight, but have the great pleasure of speaking with Drew Dudley, and he's the author of This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. If you'd like to join us, we still have a few minutes left together, so please call one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. All right, so Drew, I chose uh, I chose class. Now you choose one of the of the other four: impact, courage, growth, or empowerment. Oh, got to pick one. Okay, let's start at the top. This is impact: a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they are better off for having interacted with you. That's the first one that was ever created. It was part of a social experiment at the University of Toronto hmm. when a student told me he walked into my office and he was dealing with one of those. Life battles, I think, when you're torn between what you want and being the person you want to be. And he said, it's a lot easier to stand up for an ideal than it is to live up to it, isn't it? Which I think he stole. But, <laughs> but it's a great line. <laughs> one, of my favorite leadership, uh, one of my favorite leadership adages is this. You never steal anything in leadership. You just benchmark a best practice. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's good. And, and so, yeah, I, I challenged them. I said, okay, you get to pick one value. And, and if you're listening to this, I, I, I encourage you to think the same thing. You get to pick one value and one value only, and every person in your organization, every person on your campus will do one thing every day that lives up to that value. It won't be the only thing they live up to, but it's the only guaranteed value. What do you pick? And I love challenging organizational leaders and members of communities to think about that. And my students picked impact. Hmm. And they said it's this commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel better off for having interacted with you. Hmm. And the question we created was, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Hmm. Because a premise, a main premise of of my book is that leadership recognized is leadership created. Hmm. And we talk a lot about creating better leaders and creating better teams. But what I've discovered is that that becomes less important if you focus on creating better teammates. So if we're going to develop leaders, that's great. But first, start recognizing the leadership that surrounds us every single day. And what happened when we sought to answer that question every day for seven days? It was that question and that experiment that led me to quit my job. Because it was such a powerful impact with 12 mm-hmm. students and one, one leader, uh, one person in charge, I guess, me at the time. When I, with all of us doing that for one week and journaling our answers on how we answered it, when we went and reviewed it a week later, there wasn't a single person within that meeting who at some point didn't cry because of the stories we heard. Mm-hmm. Teachers, <laughs> coaches, parents, friends, mentors, and former bosses, like the students leaned into this. And we discovered that that question didn't change who we were, and it didn't change what we valued, but it made us so much more aware of how many leaders surrounded us that we hadn't noticed, how many opportunities for impact that were surrounded us each day, and it made us far less likely to let those moments pass by anymore because we had this question that, we, that bugged us. It stayed in our brain, and whenever we saw an opportunity to answer it, we did. And there were some powerful stories that came out of it. But what happened beyond everything else is we never missed an opportunity. Most of us did it more than once on those seven days. We never missed an opportunity to start recognizing leadership 
and in the process, making it more likely the person we did or that we did it for was going to do it as well. Mm, that's uh, I really appreciate that uh, because you're speaking to the importance of empowering others. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more on the impact on yourself from that experience. <laughs> that, well, besides the fact that it was such a powerful process that I began teaching it to the point where I actually left my job. Mm-hmm. And someone told me once the three most addictive things on the planet are crack, carbohydrates, and a salary. And so <laughs> that was tough. I mean, for me, just later that, I think it was later that same night, I was stuck in a line at a grocery store, and the cashier was the most extraordinary cashier, just ripping things through at a pace I'd never really seen before like easily the best cashier I'd ever seen. Hmm. And I realized the, the more people in our society that are capable of doing a job, the less likely we are to recognize excellence in that job. And so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to say to her that she was the type of leader we were trying to recognize to answer that question. And so I actually ended up buying a, a pack of chocolates and throwing them on the belt. And when she went to put them in the bag, I said to her, actually, those are for you because I've watched <laughs> you for 20 minutes. And no one's been nice to you, but I've never seen anyone work so hard. And I'm supposed to be recognizing leadership, and I wanted to tell you that that's the definition of leadership to me, someone who does more than what's expected from them in a way that benefits others. Or I said (laughs) something to that effect. I've cleaned it up now, I'm sure, to make myself sound smart. (laughs) And what did she say? (laughs) I wanted to make her smile, right? Mm -hmm. Two bucks to make her smile, and she started to cry. Oh. (laughs) And not what I was going for. I'm Canadian, right? Like, <laughs> I've apologized to inanimate objects over which I've tripped. That's great. But she started to cry. And I realized, she just said, look, sir, no one's even been polite to me today. And you bought me chocolates. And I don't even know how to deal with this. And I started to realize that I'd spent most of my career trying to accumulate uh, letters after my name and a prestigious title and work at a prestigious university. And in the process of doing that, I prioritize moments like that so far below answering my emails or getting to a meeting or finishing a paper. And yet there were so many more opportunities in my interactions with people every day. I didn't know her, but I also had students. I also had colleagues. And we're just letting those moments slip by. Mm -hmm. Every one of you who's listening out there, you've got someone you work with, you've got a former boss who was an essential part of getting you where you are or how you do your job every day. For me, what, what that question has done is it made me actually think about who they were, and it made it really unlikely I don't tell them that. And a lot of times when you recognize that leadership in, especially if they're younger than you, if you recognize leadership in, for all of you who have students, for all of you who have, are mentoring younger employees, mm-hmm. when you recognize leadership that impacted you personally in someone younger than you, what you've done is you've created someone who's going to do it again for somebody else. And this is where leadership and empowerment throughout society is born. We can't just talk about how important it is. The whole point of the day one process is to actually live up to that. Yeah, I want to be someone who has impact. Really? Can you answer how you recognize someone else's leadership today? Because it's that difference. If you do it a couple of times or three times a, a week, it's a, it's a hobby. Ultimately, it, it really is about turning it into a practice. And that's really what the process is designed to do. Very good, Drew. I really appreciate that. And, you know, we've been talking about the core values that you identified. 
uh, because time is short, uh, we won't have the opportunity to dig into each of the remaining three, but I would just love to have you speak to the opening question for each. So courage, what's, what's the defining question? What have I tried today that might not work, but tried anyway? Because we do get courage sort of beaten out of us through an education system that makes mistakes the worst thing that we could possibly do. And Mm -hmm. so that, if you really want to get an idea of that, there's a great TED Talk by Jia Jag called uh, 100 Days of Rejection that I highly recommend. (laughs) That's great. I love the title. I'm going to look that up. For sure. (laughs) Okay. So uh, I love it. Now, how about for growth, the defining question? What have I done today to make it more likely someone would learn something? Focusing on the idea that it's a commitment to acting as a a catalyst for the expansion to add value. Leaders Mm -hmm. add value to their lives and the lives of others. Anything you do that increases your ability to do that is growth. And and a big Mm -hmm. suggestion I make is give fewer statements and fewer orders. Mm -hmm. Worry less about having answers and work more on whether or not you ask great questions. And I'm not just going to – I'm going to actually define that as this. A great leadership question is one – where the person being asked the question learns more than the person asking it. So often, it's very much Socratic, right? Mm -hmm. If you ask a question, you figure it's you that wants the information. No, you ask a question that makes someone realize what they don't know. My my favorite, my most favorite, my goodness, (laughs) my favorite is, why do you matter? Mm -hmm. And people hate that question, but they start wondering, why don't I have an answer? And then in that case, you've established growth. Anytime you facilitate learning, you've lived the value of growth. Oh, very good. All right, last one, empowerment. What have I done today to make it more likely someone else would move closer to a goal? Hmm. Ultimately, we do go through a system. We teach people to compete with one another. Empowerment recognizes that ultimately real leadership is about creating an environment where anybody can do your job, but nobody wants to take it. You demonstrate you're as committed (laughs) to the development of other people as you are to yourself, and your career is going to be exceptional. Too many people think the way to make your career exceptional is to outperform others. It's to become the type of person where everyone who works with you outperforms everyone who doesn't. Oh, that's really beautifully said, Drew. So I just want to remind listeners that you've had the great pleasure of listening with Drew Dudley today, and he's been talking about his book, This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. So, Drew, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about your book? The best bet is drewdudley.com. That's where we've got everything you need to know about the book, where you can get it. And even we can, if you want to learn the process uh, live, there's even an online way you can go through and do that as well. But drewdudley.com is where you'll find all that information. All right. Very good. Well, Drew, I really want to thank you so very much uh, for joining us tonight. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. And I know that your book has uh, just been released, so I... I wish you great success and continued well-being. Oh, thank you so much for having me tonight. Oh, thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.